Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 44. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses and, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. And they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had all that she had to live on. Righto, well, today the rubber really hits the road. Um, when we sort of read this Bible reading about this poor widow, I, I don't know how we can possibly read it and not be challenged about our own response to God um, and not just in the areas of giving. Last week, Jesus told a scribe that the first and greatest commandment is to you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. In other words, love God with every single part of your being, every bit of yourself. And they said, the second is this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. But even at this point, the scribe who agreed with Jesus, yes, okay, that's a good thing to love God with all my heart, with every fibre of my being, and to love my neighbour as myself, he recognised that that was a good thing, but... Even for that scribe, Jesus was showing him there was something missing for him. He said to that scribe, you're close to the kingdom of God. Now, that's sort of like an affirmation, but it's also got a sting in the tail to it. If you're close to the kingdom of God, it means you're not there yet. You see, the scribes had a wrong view of the Christ. They saw the Christ as being subordinate to David. They, they saw that the Christ was a descendant of David, and therefore he was David's son. But the Christ isn't David's son at all. He's the son of God. David calls him Lord. And to love God with every fibre of our being must begin by recognising his son. It must begin by recognising that Jesus Christ... The Son of God is Lord. And he's not just a Lord. He is the Lord. And he is our Lord. And for Jesus to be the Lord, that means that Jesus must come first in every area of our life. Um, To be Lord just means that Jesus is boss. He has command of us. Now, in the Bible reading today, we are presented with a vivid contrast. We see one person who is truly loving God with everything that she is and with everything that she has. We don't even know her name. All we know is she's a widow who had very little and she's just put her last two small copper coins into the offering box. And we have this vivid contrast of this quiet, unassuming widow giving to God 
everything that she has, and she's contrasted against the ostentatiousness of the scribes. Ostentatiousness, that, there's, a, there's a word for you. Um, that, that means they were showy, they were pretentious, that they were doing everything that they were doing to try and attract attention for themselves. And it, it was all about presenting an image and keeping up an appearance so that everybody could see these blokes and admire them. The long robes they wore, the big sums of money that they're putting into the offering box, the highfalutin language they used in their long prayers. See, they, they wanted to be recognised as people who had spiritual insight and knowledge and they wanted to be admired. Let me tell you, though, God isn't at all impressed with ostentatiousness and with showy religion. And showy religion, well, that's something which can stretch and does stretch across the centuries. It stretches across traditions and it stretches across denominations. It used to come in the form of the grand medieval cathedrals that they would build. The temple itself in Jesus' day was, was just showy religion. And then throughout the centuries and even today, we've got some, some ministers wear an owl, but that's like the dressing gown that you wear and, and the pretty scarves and, and the fancy hats. Some of the hats will be big, tall ones with gold braid and some of them will be smaller and fancy colours. And, and each part of this religious garb indicates how far up the tree they are and how important they are. And Jesus said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and they like greetings in the marketplaces. Now, what, what are they doing? They're getting all dressed up so that they don't look like normal people. Now, why would they do that? It was their way of saying, I'm different. I'm more special than you are. By the way, how is a minister supposed to look? Uh, it's been a number of times I've met somebody and, and then they've later on discovered I was a minister or something, and, and, and a pastor, and they go, oh, you don't look like a minister, or you don't look like a pastor. And I usually follow that up with another question, well, what's a pastor supposed to look like? And they usually answer, I don't know, just not like you. And so obviously pastors shouldn't be average height, overweight, and dressed in daggy clothes. But showy religion... It can be found in megachurches. It can be found in tiny churches. And I wonder what Jesus would show about the showiness of some of our modern worship today, where we have a concert-like production and smoke machines and fancy lighting. And, and when we get together, we have, we have a pastor and worship leaders where it's all about projecting an image. Just obviously not the image I project because I don't look like a pastor. But ostentationist, showy religion, it's all to do about all to do with external appearances. I was greatly saddened one day when the synod of the denomination I was in decided that they're going to employ a lead media liaison person. Um, in the years earlier to that, we'd There'd been cutbacks and everything and they could no longer afford a, a, a youth and children's ministry unit anymore. But they did manage to scrape some dollars aside so they could create a new position for a media liaison person. And as I read the position description, 
I realised that the church was employing a spin doctor. Um, they, they, the position description described that this person was there to, to present a positive image of the church to the media and at the same time to keep track of any negative publicity that was coming for the church through the media so that if possible they could tell an alternative story to, to give a positive image. They were employing a spin doctor, just the same as political parties do and so on. And it was all to do with external appearances. And that just made me really sad. That's not what we're supposed to be about as the church. Showy religion has no place amongst the disciples of Jesus. Showy religion is all concerned about how things appear. And God has no interest in how things appear. He, wants, he has an interest in our hearts and what our hearts are like. Anyway, Jesus says, beware of the scribes. Now, why would he say that? Well, it's because they're not what they appear to be. The scribes were all show. They wanted recognition. They were looking for accolades for themselves. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in their long robes and they like greetings in the marketplaces and they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. What the scribes did was all for themselves. It wasn't because they loved God with every fibre of their being. As I read through this list here, what I see they're chasing is things like glory and recognition and self-promotion. And they're trying to get for themselves an image of spiritual elitism. They were glorious and resplendent, walking around in their fancy long robes. And they loved it when people recognised them. They just wanted everybody to know who they were. They wanted to be a somebody. And so at the marketplaces, they'd look for that recognition. They did what they did to be promoted. They they wanted to have the best seats in the synagogues and they wanted to have the places of honour at the feasts. Now, I was all ready to say to you lot at this stage, now we can see that none of you lot are interested in trying to get the best seats in the church because usually we might only have two or three people, two or three rows at the back, everybody right at the back. But we're sort of a bit fuller today, aren't we? So I can't really say that. But isn't that the way? Like we always want to sit at the back. But they like to, to give off an air of spiritual elitism. For a pretense, they made up their long prayers. Now, that was the image that they wanted to present. But what were they really like, these blokes? Well, Jesus described them as men who devour widows' houses. And even when they prayed, it was only a pretense. It was make-believe. It was an act. The Greek word there is prophesi, which means to pretend to be engaged in a particular activity, They were pretending to pray. They'd make up their long prayers, but they weren't real. They were just pretending. Their prayers weren't coming from the heart. 
The prayers were all just for show. The prayers weren't because they were wanting to engage with God and share with him at a deeper level. They just wanted to, 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 for all to be show. It was a performance for them, for other people to see. Pretend praying. Pre- pretend worship. What do you think about that? I got invited along to a worship leading seminar once and, and at that seminar we're taught you can't get up to lead worship unless you're going to be really happy and really joyful. You know, you've got to, you've got to give off the, the vibe of being happy. You know, you've got to exude happiness. Even if you've had a terrible morning, right? Even if you've, you've got up in the morning and the kids are fighting and, the, and you've backed the car out and you run over the dog and you turn up at church and, and everything's just, everything's, oh, you've still got to put on that happy smile and, and, and dance for joy, they'd say. And they said to us, you might, you might think that's faking it, but no, we like to think of it as faithing it, right? So don't fake it. Faith it. In faith, act that you're happy and you will be joyful. That's what we're told. Now, I don't know how, about, how you feel about that, but I wasn't at all convinced. You see, the Psalms, right in the middle of our Bible is the book of Psalms, and the Psalms is actually the worship book of Israel. It tells about how people used to worship God back then. And there are times when the psalmists would praise God from the pit of despair. They didn't have to put on this happy act to get up and lead worship. They could come and share from their pit of despair and worship with God's people. See, God doesn't want us to pretend. I don't think there's anything that puts people off faster than than people who pretend to be all good with God and, and all religious, when hidden away, they're actually rotten to the core. He doesn't want us to pretend that we're joyful when we're not. He doesn't want us to make up pretend prayers that sound really good and sound really spiritual. He'd rather us give a prayer from our heart, no matter how simple it is, simple it is And no matter how much we stumble over our words, he doesn't want us to pretend in our worship. He wants us to be real with him. And isn't that what you want? Don't you want people to be real in worship? Don't you want people to be real when we pray? In a lot of popular churches today, it's all about projecting an image. Projecting an image of happiness, projecting an image of prosperity, projecting an image of success, projecting an image that says, my life's all together, or to give an image of popularity. And it's all to give the image that, hey, this is a happening place. Come to our church and you'll be just as happy as I am. You'll be just as prosperous as all the leaders. You'll be just as successful as everybody here. And in a church like that, it's paramount that the leader of the church project this sparkly image. But it's all about image. How do you think God really feels about that? It's more than a few weeks ago now for us, but in the terms of the Gospel of Mark, it's probably only a couple of days 
since Jesus was condemning the fruitlessness of temple worship. And he was saying that it was like a den of robbers. It's like a lair. It's like a safe place where, where thieves hang out. And he gave the example of the fig tree. There was the fig tree. It was all leafy. It all looked wonderful, but there was no fruit on it. And that's what the temple was like. Everything looked really impressive. It all looked very religious and there was plenty of stuff going on. And it was a, a very fancy building. But amongst the people there and amongst the leaders, there was no fruit of righteousness. And today, Jesus singles out the scribes, the lawyers, the religious lawyers, the, the blokes who knew stuff, right? They knew the scriptures inside out and back to front. But Jesus singles these scribes out for their part of being a den of robbers. He says of them they devour widows' houses. Now we don't know how they're doing that. But what we do know is that, that God has a very deep concern for those who are most vulnerable. People like widows and orphans. And we don't know how the scribes were devouring the widows' houses but that's a particularly despicable thing to do, to take advantage of those who are most vulnerable. Maybe they're charging exorbitant fees for the religious legal services or, or maybe they're mismanaging the estates of the widows. We don't know what they were doing. But they were gaining financially from whatever they were doing to such a scope that the widows would often end up losing their home. Now, it may very well have been legal, what, everything that they were doing. But being legal doesn't mean that it, that it also lives up to the standard of God's fruit of righteousness that God wants of his people. And that's a lesson for us today. We might be quite within our re legal rights to take financial advantage of somebody or of some situation. But the thing is, often it's the most vulnerable members of the community who are easy to be taken advantage of. And that is not the fruit of righteousness that God is looking for in our lives. Righto. Now, at this point, we move to the next scene. We move to the temple treasury. And there at the temple treasury, there were numerous offering boxes, each for a different purpose. Put in this box to build the temple. Put in this box for your temple tax. Put in this box for this purpose or put in this box for that purpose. And Jesus actually sits down to watch what the people are putting in. Now, I can't even really picture this. Like, I've always felt a bit embarrassed to see what people put in the offering. Even when I was a little kid, I remember it was when it was my turn to take up the offering I'd actually, you know, we'd pass the plate around, I'd actually try to not look and not see what people were putting in the offering because it, it just didn't feel right for me to know because this was a person's personal response to God. And I even knew that as a little kid. And even now, I, I, I'm still embarrassed to know what people put into the offering. Um, you'll notice that at Bush Disciples, we just have a, an offering box sitting up there on the smoko table. And, and nobody is obligated to put anything into it. We don't pass the box around. We don't sort of hold it there and say, come on, put in. And, and we don't see what people put in. They can just anonymously put it into the box. But 
It still doesn't stay so anonymous because most of our regular givers now give by direct deposit and that's the easiest way to do it these days. And of course when the, when the um, bank statement comes in, the information has to get transferred into the cash books and I still get embarrassed to know what people are giving. But I'm also humbled, greatly humbled, at what people give. Anyway, I've always felt a little bit embarrassed to know what people are giving. But Jesus sits down and he watches. Now, I can't even picture that. I wonder, was that the done thing back then? Was that the entertainment? You'd sort of, they'd have seats set up there and you sit down and watch what, who's putting what in the offering box. I don't know. And we sort of do that a bit in our society today with telethons and all that sort of thing, don't we? It's a, it's a show, people giving. So, but anyway, Jesus did that. Um, maybe I just need to get over being embarrassed. And as Jesus watched, he noticed two things. Firstly, there were many rich people putting in large sums. And that's a good thing. If God has blessed you with, a, with finances, then it's good for you to support the ministry of God with your finances. But sometimes... When a rich person gives a large sum, a really big deal gets made out of it. And it is, oh, isn't it wonderful that, that this, this person has given so much money? But what God values is different to what the world values. You know what the thing that Jesus really noticed when he watched the offering box? He noticed a poor widow who came and dropped in two tiny copper coins. Now, how much were they worth? Australia's copper coins, one cent pieces and two cent pieces, were removed from circulation the year that I got married, 1992. And so none of the kids here would have ever had the opportunity to hand a two cent piece over at the counter of the, of the corner shop to buy a two cent lolly. Um, I'm pretty sure a two-cent lolly wouldn't even exist anymore. I don't think you can buy 10 lollies for, 10, for 20 cents anymore. Um, but what were these copper coins worth? Well, the coins that she gave were the lepton. And they were about the size of our one-cent piece. And it was worth one-hundredth of a denarius. Now, a denarius was one day's wages for a labourer. So with my best figuring, I reckon these two coins were worth around about $3.20 of our money. Probably enough for her to buy just enough grain for her to make up, make up probably two meals for herself, as long as she didn't have to feed any kids. So even if she gave one of these coins away and kept one for herself, she might have still been able to get just one more meal before she had nothing left. But she didn't do that. She gave both those coins in the offering to God. And then she didn't have anything to live on. And Jesus called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, 
all she had to live on. That is sacrificial giving. You see, the rich people, yes, they gave a lot of money, but they also made sure that they stayed rich. Out of their abundance, they gave a lot, but they continued to be abundant. But the widow, she only gave a little bit in dollars terms, but she gave God everything she had. Jesus has just said in verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What's he saying? Love God with everything that you are and with everything that you have. And the widow did. Now, I've got to confess, I get really torn over this. This widow was giving to God, but where was the money really ending up? It was propping up a system of fruitless religion. In part, it was funding the religious leaders who were probably part of the den of robbers. Her offering was in part funding the scribes who are the same people who Jesus has told us are devouring widows' houses. But in her heart, she wasn't giving to a den of robbers. She was giving to the Lord her God, who she loved with all her heart. And there's a lesson here for leaders in the church. When people give to the, to the work of a ministry, actually, let's bring it closer to home. When someone makes an offering to our church, to Bush Disciples, they're giving to God. Therefore, those who are in charge of the church's finances and who oversee how the money is spent in the church, they must remember who we're responsible to. We're not managing our own affairs. We're not managing a business. Whatever money is received belongs to God. And it is imperative that we use this money to the glory of God and in his service. I really cringe at worldwide tele-evangelists who buy for themselves private jets and mansion after mansion and limousines. There's a U2 song called Bullet the Blue Sky. Not sure what the title really means. But there's a stanza in it which says... And I can't tell the difference between the ABC News, Hill Street Blues and a preacher on the old-time gospel hour stealing money from the sick and the old. Well, the God I believe in isn't short of cash, mister. And let's, let's not try and avoid this. There are frauds in the church. There are evil people in the world who masquerade as God's servants getting rich at the expense of those who are most vulnerable, the sick and the old. What did Jesus say about people like this? He said they will receive the greater condemnation. But with this example of the widow, I still get torn. 
Over the years, in various churches I've attended, I've seen this happen time and time again, that the rich give out of their abundance, but sometimes it's those who can least afford to give who give so much more. Sometimes they give more even in dollars terms, but they always give more proportionally. Sometimes I've seen them give from their savings and don't leave much for themselves. And I see the rich stay rich and the poor sacrifice what little savings they have. And I get torn because I want to say to people like that, don't give. No, no, don't, don't, don't you be the one who gives. Let somebody else do that this time because you, know, you can't really afford it. Maybe we as a church should actually be helping you to get by. But I get torn because that's what I want to say to them. But at the same time, I know that loving God with every fibre of their being means that the Holy Spirit has done something inside of them and they want to give and they need to give. And even out of their poverty, they give. And in my experience in the church, some of the biggest givers are not rich. Some of them have the least. But they give because this is an expression of them loving God with every part of their being, with everything that they have and everything that they are. And it's hard to see someone who has a little bit and yet they give much. But who are you and who am I to put the brakes on their personal sacrifice to God? And so what we have to do is make sure to, to honour them and, and make sure that the offerings that they give are used in the way they're intended. Offerings aren't designed to make anyone in the church rich. And they're certainly not designed for propping up showy religion. It's not there for building fancy buildings for show and, and just making everything an image. And those who misuse what's been given will be judged. God's economy is the opposite of the worldly economy. And what God values is very different to what we value. It's not about how much you have and therefore how much you can manage to put in the offering. It's about devotion. It's about devotion that comes at a great personal cost. It's about sacrificial giving. And, and I don't want us to be fixated on dollars and cents here. I want us to take this beyond dollars and cents. Yes, the widow gave everything in terms of money, but it was just an example of her loving God with every part of her being. And that was a stark contrast against the ostentatiousness, the showiness of the scribes. You've got them there with all of their showiness, and then you've got this quiet, humble, unassuming widow giving of herself. How about we love God with the whole of our being? Not being showy about it, not pretending, 
not trying to project an image to, to either make people like us or to try and even attract them to God. It's not about giving our money because we want people to think that we're really generous. Let's love God with the whole of our being simply because we love God. That's what it boils down to. Let, let's not do anything because we've been told to. Let's just honour God, love God with the whole of our being simply because we love him. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is our saviour who died and rose again. Now, I can, I can go through life ignoring that. But the reality is that because Jesus is Lord, he places a demand on my life that he become my Lord, that he become the centre of my being. My whole life needs to be focused on Jesus. And we can get distracted by all sorts of things. But where should our focus be? On our Lord. He died on the cross for us. He died to save us from our sins. Let's love him with the whole of our being. It's pretty confronting, isn't it? When there's always people who I see in their walk with God make me feel really inadequate. And I think, man, oh man, if only I could be a Christian like that. You know what? Sometimes people might actually see that in you. When you respond to God in a certain way, they might actually, you mightn't think of it as a big deal, but they might actually go, oh, I wish I was able to respond to God like that. Now, we don't, we don't do what we do so that people will recognise that in us. But I know sometimes when I see somebody's response to God, I'm left feeling, hey, I, I need to make some adjustments to my life. I need to make some adjustments to my walk with God. And I read this story of this widow who gave everything and I look at myself and I go, I really haven't loved God with all of my being. I see her response to God and I think, wow, there are some adjustments I need to make to my life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we want to thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that Jesus died on the cross so that we might have life. We want to thank you that you take all of our brokenness and all of our sinfulness, all of our wrongdoing away when we confess it to you and when we repent. And that in your grace and in your love, you restore us to be your children. 
And Lord, what can we do in return? What can we do to pay you back for that? Nothing. Lord, because of who you are and because you are Lord and because you are our Saviour, we worship you. Lord, we have worshipped you and we've loved you with a little bit of ourselves. But we have shut you out of so much of our lives. God, forgive us. And Lord, even today, help us to begin to live as your disciples, loving you with our whole heart, with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. Lord, help us to love you with every fibre of our being, that you would become the centre of our life, that you would become the focus of our being. In Jesus' name, amen.